Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teaching we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Thanks so much, Peter. Uh, you'll see in the leaflet there's an outline of uh, roughly where I'm going. And as you were listening just then, you would have worked out that there are just a couple of complications uh, with this passage as you try and work out some of the ideas uh, that are being spoken about. So I'm going to pray that God will help us uh, understand his word and also understand the implications of it for ourselves. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your uh, great love and mercy towards us in your son. And Father, we ask that as we consider your word this morning, we'll be strengthened and encouraged by it, that you'll, you'll help us to understand what we need to know uh, so that we might know you better and serve you faithfully. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we gather Sunday by Sunday, we always gather with some of us who are uh, clear, convicted believers, uh, some of us who are trying to work it out, not sure where you're up to, and uh, probably a bunch of us in between as well. Uh, let me just for a moment though, address my attention to those of you who would clearly understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus and the question I want to ask you is this, uh, do you ever think about what would 
potentially stop you uh, from following Jesus? Do you think about what could occur that might unsettle you as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it would be? Or let me just change it slightly. Uh, What could occur that might cause you to become a uh, hobby Christian? You know, not a serious Christian, but someone who's, you know, wouldn't deny the truth about Jesus, but just grows sort of casual. Yeah, one of the interests you have in life rather than the thing that passionately grabs your heart and life. And I know that all of us from time to time wonder if that's exactly what we've slipped into, but, you know, that sense of what what could occur that would cause you to step back and grow casual in that sort of way. Uh, It seems to me it could be persecution, uh, that is, if you were living in the Middle East and, for example, were a uh, follower of Islam and knew that by converting to become a follower of Jesus, your family might uh, persecute you or even kill you, that could profoundly cause you to hesitate and ask the question about how serious you were about following Jesus. Uh, It could be temptation. I had a pastor who called me this week and said to me that he just was asking for advice. He had a young woman in her young 30s, single, uh, who he thought was a pretty serious, keen Christian in his church. Uh, But then some people from his church rang him up and said, look, I don't know if you've seen her Facebook page. And he looked up her Facebook page and there were pictures of her at a hotel with her non-Christian boyfriend in the hotel room celebrating her 30-something birthday. And, And I... I get that in a sense. Uh, Here is a woman who very keen to be married and just finding it difficult to make that work and reconcile being Christian with that. Temptation can sometimes lead people away from what they know to be true. What about you, though? You know, do you have any sense of what it would be for you potentially? Uh, I don't dwell on this question, but I think that if my children, who are all in their 20s now, stopped following Jesus, I would be very tempted to change or modify the gospel in some way so that they'd still be included, so that, you know, to adjust the truth so that it could still embrace them. I think that would be the area. You know, I hope and pray I would not do that, but I, I think the people so close to you like that, if something happened along those lines, I'd be very tempted just to change the boundaries so that they might not be excluded in some way. When we turn to this church that was in Thessalonica, and Stephen's captured it well in the children's talk, there were different pressures they were under. If you go to Acts 17, you see that they were suffering persecution for being followers of Christ. That's one of the reasons why Paul couldn't stay very long and got got kicked out. So he was there for a couple of weeks, trained, discipled them, then had to leave. Persecution was powerful. But when we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that we're looking at this morning, and if you you have it open in front of you, that would be enormously helpful, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, what we come across here is an issue of false teaching. False teaching. And it's infected the church and it threatens to create instability among the believers and to pull people away from Christ. So what the the Apostle Paul does when he writes to this young church is he wants to look after them. So the the, uh, catchphrase in terms of his intention for them comes in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm, 
and hold to the teachings that we passed on to you. Stand firm, hold to the teachings that we passed on to you. Now, what's this specific false teaching problem uh, that they're facing here? Well, it was all to do with eschatology, right? And I can see all your ears just pricking up and your eyes lighting up as I say that word. It actually took me about five years to learn how to spell that word, right? So eschatology. All we're talking about here is the end times, or it's to do with the return of Jesus to this world and the way God will wind up the history of this planet and the sequencing of the events around what will happen when Jesus returns. That's, that's really all we're talking about. Jesus' return and what happens in association with it. It's a big theme. It's a big issue throughout both these letters to this church. Uh, if you've got your Bibles there, turn back to 1 Thessalonians. And in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 9 and 10, Paul, as he's introducing himself to this church, he says to them, he captures who they are, and how they've gone. He says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Okay, that was part of who they were as a people of God. And in 1 Thessalonians, the issue addressed when you get to chapters 4 and 5, I think the issue the Christians were asking is what has happened to our friends who have died before Jesus returns? You know, they had that, they didn't have much. Christian experience at that point. So they're saying, well, we're waiting for Jesus' return. What about our mates who are dead now? What happens to them? And there was some confusion around that. By the time we get to 2 Thessalonians, there's a slightly different issue and a different angle that comes up. Same theme or area, the return of Jesus, different facet. So you come to verse 1 of chapter 2, and Paul again talks about Uh, things that concern the coming of our Lord and our being gathered to him, right? Just goes back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Then he goes in in verse 2 and says, there are some who are saying that the day of the Lord has already come, right? Not waiting for the day of the Lord and what will happen to our dead friends, but some who are saying, Jesus actually has already returned. It's happened sometime in the past, not the future, So what does that mean? And then Paul goes on in verse 3 and says, don't let anyone deceive you. And what Paul goes on to do, particularly in verses 3 to 10 of this chapter, is to explain why the day of the Lord hasn't come. So he gives them the reasons why they they should know that that's the case. And there are a series of reasons. Verse 3, the rebellion has yet to occur first and the man of lawlessness appears. Uh, Verse 4, This man of lawlessness will set himself up in God's temple and proclaim himself to be God. Verse 6, we're told this man of lawlessness is being held back. And verse 8, the man of lawlessness will then be overthrown by the Lord Jesus. And verse 9, it talks about the uh, counterfeit miracles and signs that will occur. Aren't you so thankful he's just sort of so quickly cleared up all the confusion, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you should laugh, actually, because as you read it through, you think, hmm, there's bits here I don't completely get. You know, like, who is this man of lawlessness? You know, we had a sort of a discussion around the table last night, sort of an extended family discussion. Are we talking about a, a particular person 
or are we talking about a, sort of a, a way of describing a time, you know, a metaphor for a period of time or events that occur? You know, that's one possibility that's bounced around here. And there have been all sorts of ideas uh, that have been thrown around over the years. I think one thing you can know is that the Thessalonians did or should have had a better idea than we do about what Paul's talking about. Now, the reason for that is you pick it up in verse 5, where Paul says, when I was with you, with the Thessalonian church, he says, when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. So he's obviously already canvassed the sort of issues with them, you know, lawlessness, distraction, setting himself up in the temple, uh, someone who wants to be treated like God. So slightly better understanding than we might have. So what are some of the possibilities that have been canvassed over the years? Let me run through a few of them for you. And 40 AD, Caligula... Uh, set a statue of himself up in the temple, right? And the Roman emperors have been regarded as being maybe this sort of man of lawlessness, antichrist figure, you know, Domitian, Nero, Augustus. Uh, in 63 AD, uh, Pompey desecrated the Holy of Holies in the temple. Uh, you then come, say, to the Middle Ages, and it was quite popular to think this man of lawlessness might be any one of a number of popes or... Muhammad, or a bit later on, Napoleon. Uh, if we came down to more modern times, uh, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, even more modern times, a number of presidents of the United States have been put forward as possibilities, uh, especially the unpopular ones like uh, George Bush. Uh, Ronald Reagan was actually a very popular one. Does anyone know what Ronald Reagan's middle name is? Anyone know? Wilson. Okay, so Ronald Wilson. Reagan. How many letters in each of his names? Six, right? Six, six, six. It's pretty obvious, really, once you understand, you know, what life... Now, at one level, it's easy to sort of laugh and to mock. What I don't want to do, though, is to cause us to dismiss Scripture or to, you know, just think, ha-ha, we can't, no, laugh it off, push it to one side. Because the teaching here is actually profoundly important. And while the details might be slightly unclear to us, uh, the essential character of the teaching of this part of the Bible is extremely clear. That's very clear. That is, at Jesus returned, which Paul says very clearly has not happened yet, there will be judgment. The day of the Lord will bring a day when we all face accountability before our great God. Uh, Those who are dead going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, they will be raised to life with Christ when he comes in, in his return. And again, they will join us. The followers of the Lord Jesus Christ will be gathered together. We also know from other parts of the Bible that when Jesus returns, our creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. Yeah, the reality is the struggles that we face in this world will be ended when Jesus returns. They're all sort of markers of the reality of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see that last point if you read through places like Romans 8 or Revelation chapter 21, it is very clear. So let me ask you this question. Paul, thinking about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord, why is he so concerned about the confusion on that issue? Uh, If someone was asking me to uh, share about Jesus 
you know, with, with a friend who wasn't a believer. Um, where do you go? What would be you know, your thumbnail sketch of the gospel? You know, the truth about Jesus. You know, you'd certainly you know, have elements in it like Jesus' death for sin and his resurrection to life. Would you, would you talk about the return of the Lord Jesus? Would you talk about God as creator? You know, what, what are the essentials, the critical things for someone to believe as an ongoing follower? Paul clearly thinks this issue of the return of Jesus is really, really important. Uh, so on this issue, he says in verse 2, don't become easily unsettled or confused, alarmed. Verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. See, Paul is saying that this truth about Jesus' return is not a trivial pursuit truth. There's some bits of truth that don't matter too much. Stephen was saying, you know, whether you meet in a wonderful gym like this or a cold stone church building with, you know, that's a matter of indifference, right? Just, uh, and so it is. Uh, I was reading the Guinness World Book of Records. Now, there is a world record for the most number of live worms to be eaten in 30 seconds. The man who won this record achieved it in 1998. His name was Mark Hogg. Slightly unfortunate, really. Uh, And he swallowed 62 worms in 30 seconds. Live worms. Now, the point I'm making there is who cares, you know, about the stupid things that people sometimes do. It's a relevant, trivial pursuit truth. It may be handy for an extreme fact you need it, so just thank me if you ever do use it, you know. But it's, it's not terribly useful. But this stuff about the return of Jesus is critically important. And Paul doesn't want them to get conned. And he says that there are consequences, if you don't believe it, to do with salvation. Verse 10... He says, people will perish or be judged because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. And that's in the context of talking about the return of Jesus. Or verse 12, all be condemned who've not believed the truth. See, Paul is saying this is vitally important. And he also goes on to say, it's not just a, uh, a truth that shapes your understanding of what's, what's happening... It also shapes your behaviour. So he links the truth to the way in which we live. That is, false teaching leads to a rejection of God, which leads to false behaviour. Look at verse 12 with me. Notice he says there, All will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. Now, that's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Because I would normally think it would be expressed something like this. All be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have believed the lie. He doesn't talk about believing the lie. He equates the fact that not believing the truth leads to life of wickedness. You see, a, a, a life that rejects God by the way in which we live. It's a fascinating way in which he develops it. Godless behaviour. Now... Not, not believing the truth, uh, at one level that could be related to any core teaching matter, you know, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, 
and we hear the return of Jesus. There are, there are some key things that Christians do need to believe, you know, that are essential. But let me focus for a few moments, just sticking with this wrong teaching about the return of Jesus and why it's so dangerous. Okay, let me just explore that for a few moments with you. There's a... Uh, a people that I come across pretty regularly, for example, uh, in the Adelaide context, who would regard themselves as being Christians, but who don't take the Bible particularly seriously. Now, they, they are what you would, if you were trying to label them, they're liberal in their thinking about the Bible. Uh, so they think that the Bible might contain some good ideas about God or some words that are accurate about who God is, but it's up to us to actually exercise our judgment as to which ones they are. And that also flows for the implications about how in which we, we live. So uh, these people would generally reject any notion of Jesus returning to this world and any idea of judgment. And when it comes to the afterlife, they'd say, well, the jury's out. You know, that would be the sort of approach they would take. Now, what is the consequence of that sort of thinking, uh, that sort of belief framework? Let me tell you what I observed to be some of the consequences. Uh, life then becomes all about here and now. So often people who have that sort of theological framework are preoccupied with issues to do with the environment. See, because the world is all you've got, they've actually dismissed any idea of Jesus' return and the new creation being brought in by God at that time. It's up to them to actually establish the new creation at this particular point in time. Uh, life has to do with being kind to people. Essentially, people are good. Uh, there is no sin, there is no judgment, there is no heaven, there is no hell, and there is no accountability before God, and therefore it's up to us to have self-determined morality. That's the sort of implication of what's being taught. Just do what's right for me. Now, there are some um, positive aspects to liberal theology in terms of it's not wrong to care for the environment. You know, I think that uh, you know, we can see that, that from any framework of the Bible, we are entrusted by God to care for what he's created. You know, we superintend it. Uh, I think it's actually good to want to do mercy to people around you. So... You know, they're, they're good consequences of this sort of framework. But as soon as you put aside any notion of the return of Jesus, um, clarity about the future, about accountability and judgment, you become totally self-determining. That is, you make yourself God. And that has enormous implications for salvation because you're trusting in yourself and not what God has done through his son. You see, false teaching about Jesus' return is destructive. Let me change the lens slightly. What I want to do for a moment is to uh, focus on what I would regard as being classical Pentecostal theology. Don't get too worried as I do this. I'm not having a go at anyone. And in just a moment, I will have a go at us. Okay? So don't feel like you're going to be left out in any way. Okay? Uh, and I'm, not, not, I'm just wanting to give us a bit of a sweep of it. So classical Pentecostal theology. So... Uh, those who have a more Pentecostal view of the way in which they would read the Bible hold to the authority of God's Word. Uh, they do and uh, are concerned about uh, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and speculating about the reality of that event. 
But classical Pentecostal theology has what's called an over-realized eschatology, right? That is, they've taken things from the future that God promises and dragged them back into the present. And so they've misunderstood, not when Jesus will return, but undercut the implications of his return and brought some of the things that will occur when he returns into the very present. Let me explain what that looks like. When they reflect on what God has done for us through his son, they affirm forgiveness, the relationship we have with God through forgiveness on the cross, the resurrection that guarantees us life, uh, peace with God through Christ. All those realities they affirm and do so powerfully. And uh, these brothers and sisters in Christ I'm talking about here, so uh, I want to make that very clear. But they would also take it a step further and say that uh, while those things are true, God actually wants to bless us in the here and the now uh, with uh, complete health, uh, abundance of resources and goods, uh, victory over sin in the present age, and that those things aren't going to be secured when Jesus returns finally, but can actually be secured now for those who have faith. They wouldn't say Jesus has returned. They would say that we get the benefits of what we will get when Christ returns now. You see, there's a confusion at that point. Now, the danger with that is that the return of Jesus doesn't make enough difference. And the focus then becomes on what God has for us in this world and being in love with this world and all the things we can have with this world. You see, it's not, it doesn't paint the future prominently and strongly enough and the contrast of the future with now. Okay? Now, let me talk about wonderfully well-balanced evangelicals like you and me. All right? um, now, we do hold to the truth about the return of Christ, but our temptation is to actually make that truth vague and indefinite sometime in the future. <laughs> True, but not held strongly enough so it actually affects our thinking in the present because it's so distant it becomes irrelevant. The consequence of that, if you don't have a powerful understanding of the return of Christ that shapes your thinking, is that actually the outcomes are pretty well the same as for Pentecostals. Because the, the truth about Christ's return is not prominent and powerful, what we do is we become preoccupied with life in the present, as if God's kingdom has already arrived on this earth. It's a theoretic, theoretical truth that potentially has little Im impact. You see how getting it wrong about the return of Jesus, either theoretically or as you put it into practice, will inevitably have powerful impact on the way you think about your life and the way in which you live. Uh, Paul is addressing that sort of problem, slightly different issue for that church, same sort of thing. Paul then goes on and talks about how to stand firm in the face of false teaching, right? And he explores that. How do you avoid the error? How do you stand firm? And it's pretty simple, really. You keep on trusting in the apostolic instruction. Verse 5, chapter 2. Don't you remember 
when I was with you, I used to teach you these things. Verse 10, uh, people will perish because they refuse to love the truth. Verse 12, he talks about believing the truth. Verse 13, saved through believing the truth. Verse 14, you've been called through our gospel. Verse 15, hold on to the teachings. Now, let me say, this is extraordinarily dangerous for me because most preachers in their application say, read the Bible and pray more. Simple equation about what you should do. That's actually pretty well what Paul is saying here, though, at one level. He is saying, if you want to stand firm, you need to be embedded in the truth of God's word. And my observation over the years is, and I've observed, you know, in 30 years of full-time gospel work, people slipping away from Christ, I cannot remember a single person who has slipped away when they have been regularly reading God's word and praying. I just can't remember that being the case. So I want to suggest to you that if you want to stand firm, you need to keep standing firm in the scriptures that are the word of God to us about truth and reality. And I want to encourage you to keep thinking about that. But I want you to note especially where Paul goes to encourage Christians to stand firm. Because again, it's, it's probably not exactly where I would have gone. Verses 13 and 14. Notice what he says there. From the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he says, if you want to stand firm, is you need to believe that God has elected you from the beginning. He has chosen you to be his. Now, normally when I raise that sort of issue in Christian circles, I just get into a big debate, you know, about who chooses who and, you know, how does this work and how can it be fair if God chooses this from the beginning, you know, and all that sort of thing. But notice it's, we're taught it here as a point of assurance and encouragement, strengthening. You can see why, can't you? Because when you're under assault, when you're wobbly, you could rely on yourself. But I tell you, it's much smarter to trust in God, the God who, by his grace and mercy and power, secures your salvation with him. And Paul says, I know, as I observe you, young Christians in Thessalonica, that God has called you to himself. I see the evidence of it in your trust in Jesus, the way you're working that out. He says, don't forget what God has done for you and to keep relying upon him as you do that. That's his encouragement. He's made you his. He has secured you for all eternity. And that's always where we need to focus when we're under pressure on the greatness of God and his salvation. Friends, this is a chapter and a letter that encourages to maintain focus in the last days. Verse 15 of chapter 2. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold on to the teachings we passed on to you. A while ago, uh, Sue and I were talking about uh, Bible reading. We tend to read our Bibles in the morning, uh, often sort of separately and uh, pray and then talk about what we're reading. And Sue was saying, you know, I don't know if we teach enough on the return of Jesus. You know, 
Now, when Sue was using we, it was the royal we. You understand how that works. That is, uh, when she says we teaching, Sue doesn't teach that much up front, as you probably know, and I have a much greater responsibility for what we teach on. So when Sue said, we don't teach enough about the return of Jesus, she was saying, you don't make this a high enough priority. Now, as I reflected, I think she's probably right. I'm not sure that we as evangelical Christians do dwell enough on the importance of the return of Jesus and the way in which that should shape our thinking. Jesus has not returned yet, but he will. He will. It is guaranteed by God. How should that truth affect us? Let me just give you a couple of ways in which it should affect us. The first is this. It should fill us with joy now. We live in a world full of heartache. Uh, You know, we've had that situation in the States where uh, an African-American church invaded by a young man who killed people. You know, and you think that is sad. There are uh, Syrian Christians being executed on a daily basis. It's a horrible reality. But we also live in a a broken world. We're cushioned by a lot of it here in Australia. But you see the evidence of it all around us, even in this world. Uh, It is full of heartache. How do you endure? Friends, we have actually joy even in the midst of that because of the promises of God the forgiveness we have in Christ and the fact that he has secured us for eternity in relationship with him. And that is a basic joy now, even in the face of heartache. I'm not saying, you know, laugh your way through tragedy. I'm just saying the profound truths of being in Christ are not overturned when you face heartache. And that that is a reality when you know Christ. And he will return and he will make it right at that time. It affects us when we think about evangelism. Friends, there is a day coming when Jesus will return. A day of accountability where we'll all front up before God. But not just us. Uh, The people we love, uh, the people we connect with on a daily basis who have not put their trust in Jesus. They will like us come before the great God of the universe. And when you know that that is a certain truth, that must shape your thinking about your relationships now and what you prepare to put on the line when it comes to those relationships. Because you, you can't actually for a moment think that you love others if they haven't put their trust in Jesus and you know that they'll give account to him in due course. It's a powerful truth, isn't it? It'll affect us in evangelism. I think it'll also affect us in terms of what we, what we worry about in the here and now because the return of Jesus gives you perspective. Uh, you know, one of the big things that's come up in the last couple of weeks in the Australian situation is will young people in our country be able to buy their own home? Now, will they be able to afford it because of rocketing housing prices and stuff like that? Now, that's a significant issue we need to face as a nation, no doubt about it. But if you're a believer, the fact that God has secured your home in heaven 
uh, means you actually have a bedrock truth there that changes the way you think about life in this world. See? If your bricks and mortar quarter acre block in this world is really what it's all about, big deal. It is a big deal. Uh, if you know that you've been secured in Christ for all eternity and he has prepared a dwelling place for you, it's not such a big deal. And isn't it the case for all the worries and cares that we have in every area? That by knowing what God has promised for us that will be ushered in with the return of Christ, it gives you perspective. I'm not saying it, it removes the worries or the concerns or the cares. We're not unrealistic in thinking they've been dealt with at this point. They're still there, but they're put into a perspective that helps us to see them overshadowed by the reality of what God has promised us. And it means you can actually live in this world with a level of ease, trusting in the one who rules the world and has guaranteed your future. There's enormous comfort and strength with knowing that's the case. Whether it's to do with your, your finances or uh, your health, whether it's to do with death and the reality of that, you your thinking about that is shaped by the promises of God. So let me ask you, do you think you uh, think enough about the return of Jesus? Think enough about that? I don't normally give people uh, any homework from sermons. Uh, uh, normally people don't do it. That's the main reason I don't do it. But, uh, but I'm going to give it a shot uh, and I'll ask you, whether you actually did your homework when we get back next Sunday, which may mean, Stephen, that only about 10% of people turn up. But, you know, but just put that aside for one moment, okay? The homework is this. This coming week, I'd love you to, maybe three or four times this week, when you pull out your Bible, to try and find passages that talk about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ or the age to come, just to read it. Think about what it's teaching you in the context where it comes up. And to then take some time just to pray and to reflect on the implications of that for you. Just to think about how that reality that is guaranteed changes the way you think about your life and your relationships, what you own, your plans, your ambitions, whatever it might be. So three or four times this week, I'd love you to uh, have a go at doing that. All right? And actually, I won't ask you about it next week because I'll probably be discouraged. But I think it would be really fruitful right, if you give it a bit of a shot and uh, very encouraging and edifying for you and for your brothers and sisters. Okay, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us and your son. Uh, Father, we thank you that even, even though there are complexities about this passage that we don't fully understand... Thank you that the essential message of it is clear. You want us to be uh, trusting in the apostolic teaching, uh, the scriptures that we have received. Uh, you are wanting us to keep remembering the fact that Jesus will return to this world and the vast implications of that and not to live as though uh, he won't or it's already happened or it's an irrelevance. Uh, Father, we pray that you'll help us to be people who dwell with faithfulness on you and on your promises and to have that perspective that shapes our uh, fruitfulness and faithfulness to you as we live our lives day by day. Help us to encourage each other in these things. And we pray it 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.